You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of The Guidepost. We have a pretty cool guest today, and we are going to dive into the uh, supplemental material, which was just released a few days ago for the pending meeting on May 4th um, uh, with the Stripe Pass Management Board. And I think we all know how important this meeting is. So, you know, the Guides Association was able to build a pretty broad coalition uh, of support behind uh, striped bass conservation, and one of um, one of one of the one of the groups that um, we were able to partner up with was backcountry hunters and anglers, and we love the work that they do uh, out west. That's where they started, and we're very grateful that they have a New England chapter here now. Because uh, we we have yet another partner in conservation, and I'd like everyone to welcome Mike Woods, who is the chairman of the board for the New England chapter for backcountry hunters and anglers. It's good to be here, Tony. Hey, it's good. It's good to have you, buddy. Uh, it was a pleasure working with you uh, as as we waited uh, through all of that, all the documentation. Um, it was really a pleasure to get to know you and you're going to be a huge asset to the conservation community in New England. And I would be remiss not to let everyone know that we have our policy guru, Will Poston, on here as well, because he is pretty damn good with numbers and figures and memory and all the kind of stuff that I probably killed those brain cells in college. Uh, so, Will, how are you doing today, sir? Doing good, Tony. I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, I don't know how uh, true that all is, but we'll we'll go with it. Take it as a compliment, man. Take it where you can get it. You've been doing this policy stuff for long enough now. It's a, small victories are big victories. So, exactly, guys. Let's let's get into let's get into what we saw numbers wise. Uh, man, that document was complicated. Four big issues. Eighteen different things to comment on. Um, and uh, the commission uh, aggregated all of that information, put it out in the supplemental material. We all opened it up, that 2,179-page document with glee and started going through it with a fine-tooth comb. And I know some things jumped out at me, but Mike, what, 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 jumped, out at, what jumped out to you when you started reviewing that material? Uh, you're talking the supplement, not not the draft amendment, right? The supplement, yeah. This the supplement to, for the for the meeting material that just came out a few days ago. So the first thing that jumped out at me was uh, that you know people showed up, right? There were there were a lot of comments that came in. Um, I I actually went back uh, just in reviewing this and pulled up the public input uh, summary from the PID, which came out about a year ago because I wanted to compare, right? How many people showed up here versus how many people had engaged in that process. So back during the PID process last year, 
we ended up with about 3,000 comments that came in. And, you know, looking at where those came from, it was about 600 individual comments and 50 organizations. And the rest of them were form letters and hearing participants. We actually had about 50% more than that during, during draft amendment seven, uh, which was great to see. Almost twice as many individual comments, nearly 1,200 people, uh, you know, sort of did the work of digesting the draft amendment, which was complex and long, uh, almost 1,200 people there, about 50 organizations again, uh, and over 600 people showed up to the state hearings from, uh, I think the southernmost was Virginia and all the way up to Maine, which was great. I had the opportunity to sit in a lot of those state hearings, and there were so many anglers that, that showed up and spoke in support of conservation, uh, in support of recovering this fishery and protecting it long term. Um, and, and brought that to their commissioners. And I saw in some of those meetings that there were commissioners from other states as well. So for everybody that showed up, I, I'd like to say that they were heard. Um, and, uh, and I was also pleased with a lot of the results, which we can get into sort of issue by issue or, uh, or group by group as we sift through the document. No, Mike, I think you uh, nailed that. You know, the just looking right now, there was like you said, little under 1,200 individual comments. That goes such a long way um, to the commissioners as they were going to make their decisions. Uh, but, you know, to even go beyond that, the aggregate of all of those comments, which we'll dive into on a section-by-section basis, but nearly every single section was so lopsided for conservation. It's like 4,000 to to 20 on, on most of these issues. So. Um, you know, we wanted we wanted the board to have a, you know, a pretty clear mandate to support conservation, and they they have that here. Um, so it'll be it'll be tough to see if they they can weasel out of uh, um, some good old fashioned striped bass conservation in a week or two. But uh, hey, I'll tell I'll tell you what, it. Will. You know, piggybacking on what you said, thank goodness, BHA BHA is here for us to to work with because. They came in a strong second um, with with comments that were attributed to their letter that they sent out to their membership. So kudos to them um, kind of, you know, being a, a regionally newer group, um, not not new. Uh, we've had I've had the benefit of working with BHA on some federal issues uh, many years ago. So um, but but a, but a new group for our region really flexing their muscles uh and and showing showing that conservation core strength so kudos to them for for hopefully having a positive impact who knows what'll happen whenever he sits down at the table but they certainly did the best that they could so to get into actually like the nitty-gritty we were told by a lot of commissioners when we did our meetings um prior to the comment period um that they felt that conservation equivalency was uh, the biggest issue that they needed support on. Um, you know, that, that, that was, that was the one thing that, that they felt that the letters and the comments and all of these things could make a difference on. And we were urged by several States to push really hard on that. So when I scrolled through the document and I saw that 4,100 and change people said that they wanted a uh, modification of conservation equivalency to refer, reflect stock status 
And so, like in other words, if the if the stock is below the threshold, conservation equivalency can't be used. Um, so you know, four thousand one hundred and change said yes. Do not use conservation equivalency if the stock is below the threshold. Fifty-two said no. Keep using conservation equivalency at the board discretion. Now I've been doing this a long time. I saw some pretty lopsided stuff with the PID. I saw some pretty lopsided stuff with Addendum Six. This is like, this is so lopsided that I, you know, you kind of you just sit back and you're like, I, I hope that you disregard this because this will really just show the world that you don't really care about the public comments because I, I don't I don't know any management body, any state office, any anything that asked for a poll essentially on something, a survey. And it was 4,100 to 52. Now, if you add up, I think there were four different options under conservation equivalency, the fifth being status quo. If you and you could have vote, you could vote for more than one. If you add up all four of the options, it was over eight thousand to fifty-two. So, thoughts on that, gentlemen? <laughs> you know, I think that you know that four thousand number was one that that came up a lot through this through the public comment summary, and I think that represented sort of the the maximum you know really the maximum that I saw supporting anybody, right? It was uh, the sum total of everybody that had broken up and looked at, you know, specific options they were including in their comments. Um, you know, a bunch of the groups that put together sort of the form letters that also included those specific options. So I, when I look at this and I see 4,000 as the number, that that's pretty close to unanimous in terms of uh, the public input. I mean, we're talking about 50 comments. That's, uh, you know, just over a tenth of 1% of the people that took the time to digest this document felt that that was the best thing to do. 99.9%, um, that's pretty overwhelming, were, uh, were falling on the side. And I think most of them were in the B1A option, which was uh, when the stock is overfished or below threshold, that, uh, that we put the brakes on CE and we focus on recovery, which I, I know that's where the Saltwater Guides Association was advocating, and, and it's where BHA was advocating on that issue as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, we're looking at, 4,000 to 50. But if we also want to look at just what the individual comments said, you know, the people that really took the time to um, go in there and, you know, draft their own personalized email and, you know, really, really make it, um, you know, really put some effort into it. There were 630 individual comments for stock status restrictions versus 11 for status quo for CE. So that in that that is a pretty big margin on that, so that will front the 40, as well. 41, 41 for status quo were the result of form letters. Oh, uh, 33. And then eight 33, for, okay. and then eight were coming from uh, an organization. That doesn't look good. You know, I mean, so I think one of the coolest things is that like probably three years ago, we started jumping up and down and screaming about conservation equivalency and nobody knew what it was. And if anyone says, you know, angler education doesn't work, we'll, we'll tell the anglers what to think. 
I would submit to you that conservation equivalency is a really hard thing to explain to the average angler. And I would now say that a vast majority of conservation-minded striped bass anglers know exactly what conservation equivalency is, and they have determined that it's not a good thing. So I think this is a double win. You know, not only is it overwhelming, but the anglers, you know, at large out there really understand a key facet of the management of striped bass. You know, um, one of the other overwhelming, you know, trends that I saw in this were the triggers. A lot of times status quo is bad on this stuff. But with the triggers, a lot of times status quo wasn't bad. With a few exceptions, you know, it was what we were saying was don't weaken the triggers. Status quo is good enough. And it seemed pretty overwhelming that people want striped bass to be managed conservatively. They don't want to wait extra time. They don't, they don't want to wait two more years. And, you know, we know what's going on. Do it now. What did y'all think when you saw those, uh, those stats on the, on the supplemental materials? You know, the, the management triggers when, you know, when I started wading into this, there, there were some pretty bad uh, trap doors there, right? There were, you know, under tier one, there was an option to completely remove the, uh, the F target trigger um, out of the, you know, 4,000 or so people that weighed in seven people supported that seven out of 4,000. Um, you know, looking down, there were, there were a couple of other trigger removal um, options under tier two. Uh, and, and those were similar, right? It was 4,000 to nine. And then under the SSB target trigger, there were a couple more, but it was still 3,500 to about 250. And so I, I think as significant as it was to support the good things, I, I think the lack of support on the bad things is, is just as important to, you know, to notice and to make sure that commissioners are are seeing and listening to. Uh, because th those were, um, I guess if, if I were to, Put it on the flip side, those were opportunities to damage the way that we manage striped bass, um, sort of in conjunction with the other opportunities uh, elsewhere in the document that we could improve the way that we manage striped bass. Yeah, the, the old adage that defense wins championships uh, certainly held true here, or hopefully will hold true. Let me ask you guys a question here. So, so this is one of the criticisms that I hear all the time, is that... Um, You know, well, that look, they're going to certain folks on the striped bass management board are just going to criticize anything that doesn't go their way. So and, and try to poke holes into it. But I think what we'll hear is, you know, oh, it was the form letters or, oh, it was, you know, this, that or the other. And and uh, and, and, you know, my my constituents want to do this with stripers. Or my, listen, man, you could mail in letters. You could attend public hearings. You could attend public hearings in person. You could attend them virtually. You could um, you could email stuff in. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you could tape something to the back of a tortoise and point it in the direction of the commission's offices in Virginia, and that would have been accepted as well. So there's really not a lot of wiggle room for excuses. And I think what we're seeing is a reflection of the sentiments of really what 
the striped bass fishery looks like. And that is a predominantly catch and release fishery. It is not viewed as a food fish like black sea bass. It is not. It is it is viewed in a completely different light, uh, under a completely different lens. And I think every single one of these topics reflects that. I, I don't I don't know what else to say. Um, some people will deny it for sure, but this is the public saying what they want out of the fishery and how they want it managed and killing fish is not a top priority for them. You know, I, I want to, I, I think I can actually add some numbers to, to what you're saying there, Tony. Um, obviously all of the letters are here and there's an awful lot of them. So I haven't been able to go through each of those and sort of figure out who's writing in from where. But ASMFC's staff did do a state-by-state -state breakdown of the public hearings. And for anyone that was in those, uh, they were running, you know, these sort of polls, right, where they would have an issue and then they would ask the people that were in the hearing, you know, which way do you go on this? You know, where do you lean here? And for each one of those polls in every single state, you know, you had 50 participants actually voting in the polls. You know, a couple states had 20, you know, 60, 36, 78, 55. So when we have these options where you only have seven people in support of them, I have a hard time for any of these commissioners thinking that this is what your constituents say, right? You had 50 people that voted and only seven of them. That includes the form letters and individual comments are in support of, you know, that that bogus option that nobody's for, right? Um, and on the flip side, everybody else that voted in that poll, you know, they're on the other side. They're with the 4,000. They're, they're with, you know, with the group that's fighting to recover and protect these fish. So for, for any of the commissioners, I think, that are trying to sort of shrug off what their constituents think, um, I, I got to believe that, you know, those uh, those state hearing numbers tell tell a story and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd hope that they go down. And, you know, if you're if you were from New Hampshire, I hope you put that up into the find box and sort of scan through the letters that came in from New Hampshire addresses. You can do that. Uh, you know, and that goes for any state, obviously. And, and I think that the result you'd find is uh, is overwhelming support because a lot of people out of that, you know, 600 people are typically weighing in with individual comments out of those, you know, out of those 4000 support letters for you know, the different options that, uh, that the majority is behind. So that's, that's my, that's my thought when it comes to what each commissioner, uh, might look at for, for the people that they specifically represent on the striped bass board. Well, Mike, let me go, uh, one step further on that too. Cause you know, you mentioned earlier, um, had you noticed that some commissioners were going to, um, you know, the webinars and the hearings for states that they weren't representing. And I, I'd like to give, you know, kudos to those commissioners who are trying to, you know, get a full perspective on what the coastwide um, striped bass angling community is looking for and just trying to, you know, while they are only representing their state, you know, per se, it's, uh, you know, a lot should be said to those commissioners that are going the extra mile to get the full view and the full perspective of what the what the fishery really is. Yeah, I, I think back to, you know, I, I typically haven't, uh, you know, just because I, I do a lot of this work for for BHA, 
uh, as a volunteer. I haven't been able to be in all the technical committee and the law enforcement committee meetings, but but I have been able to join the the Stripe Bass Board portion of the quarterly ASMFC meetings. And from the time that the comments came in on the PID, I think every single meeting, it, it's been brought up, you know, how how much the public, you know, weighs this way or that way or what the public wants. So to your point, Will, I, I do think that a lot of these commissioners are listening to the public. They're hearing people when they speak up. Um, and for, you know, for all the all the people that did write in comments, um, that there's nothing better than knowing that the the time that you took to understand this stuff is actually going to make a difference for the future of these fish or whatever issue that you're spending the time to understand and speak up on. You know, if uh, I've heard repeatedly in in recent meetings that um, the public is losing faith in the commission, and um, you know, I think the most recent thing that comes to mind is when we went through Addendum 6, it was 95, 96% of the people wanted us to go back to one fish at, it was 35 inches, but, you know, the regulations used to be one fish at 36 inches. And it was overwhelming. And, and it was kind of, you know, a little backyard redneck logic on our part. And it was like, look, it, it worked once before. Why wouldn't it work again? And then the other thing we were thinking about was, you know, let those 2015 spawn a couple of times and, you know, maybe we'll get a good spawn. Maybe, you know, give them, a, give them a couple of years, you know, sexually mature around 28 inches. Give them, give them a little couple of years to figure out how to be a coastal striper instead of an estuarian striper and uh, give them a shot. And that didn't happen. And one at 35 wasn't even discussed. And it was like it came, the issue came up and it was like, okay, slot limit 28. And then all the states were like, woohoo, yeah, let's, we want those 2015s. Let's do this. And 96% of the public just got pushed into the closet, door shut, walked away without so much as a whimper. And I remember that. And they thought they knew better, and they didn't. And and here we are, you know, coming into this season, and the 2015s may be our last hope, and they're walking right into a meat grinder because they're legal this year. So there are an awful lot of them off Montauk in October. I saw them. There are an awful lot of them there. So, you know, um, I hope they listen this time because uh, I'm starting to feel like Charlie Brown uh, with Lucy pulling the football away. You know, you're like, you promise you're not going to pull it away this time. And you run up and you have these delusions of grandeur and that football is going to split the uprights. And that little snit pulls it away right at the last second. You end up flat on your ass. And, uh, and I'm kind of starting to feel that way. I may even get the Charlie Brown shirt, kind of have the same figure as him. Uh, might be might be funny thing to start just attending the meetings with that shirt on, um, so they so they know how I'm feeling about things. Were there any surprises in the supplementals? You know, it's it seemed like it seemed like a lot of the groups sided with us, Mike. The the BHA, ASGA, 
mantra and, and some of them veered off a little bit to the side and there were there were some that veered way the hell off onto the median jumped over the culvert and into another county um what were there were there any broad takeaways you know we've talked about the triggers we've talked about conservation equivalency um any other broad things that jumped out at you and then we'll 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 get into kind of the effort controls and recreational release mortality yeah so i actually that's one of the things that did stick out to me the first time that i read through these results uh you, you know it had to do with uh, section 4.2.2 which which is that recreational release mortality you know the options associated with that and what stuck out to me a little bit was actually the way that the the input was presented because i i know that when when those options were brought up uh asga was you know was against the the proposals to you know to to do the targeting closures and the spawning area closures and uh, bha was as well you know largely for concerns with you know enforceability and and that largely stems from the the work that the law enforcement committee is doing and opinions that they're bringing. And also, you know, when, when we wrote our letter in uh, on behalf of the chat, the BHA chapters that worked on this, um, and I, I should mention, you know, early on, you, you mentioned that I, I am associated with the New England chapter, but I, I should mention that when we sent our letter in, we had the support of every chapter board from North Carolina to Maine uh, behind the work that we were doing at the chapter level, which was really great to see that, you know, that sort of uniform front for all the BHA volunteers and leaders uh, over the striped bass's range. But getting back to my point, we were against that for the same reason. And we mentioned, you know, a, a little excerpt, if I remember right, it was on page 60, I think, of the draft document that outlined from the technical committee, the fact that they couldn't even estimate and they had no model and they didn't know what the impact to any of these closures would even be. You know, if they if the board were to put them in, they couldn't even say that it would do anything. You know, it, it, but it, it certainly would affect the businesses, uh, the people that make a living on the water, the, you know, whether it's guiding or, or whatever, the tackle shops, you know, the places that are bringing anglers out to the coast for their vacations or their weekends or, or to spend time chasing these fish. And in the presentation here, there, there wasn't really, at least in terms of the numbers, there wasn't much acknowledgement of the groups or, or the letters that were sort of didn't support the seasonal closures. Um, you know, they just listed the groups that did support them. Um, th there might have been some notes below, but the numbers didn't uh, didn't really show the the folks that were on the other side of that issue uh, in in the in the work that they did. So, Mike, um, I'll let Will comment on that, but I just want to add um, on page nine of the supplemental material. You know, part of the commission is the law enforcement uh, committee, the the LEC. And, you know, we have to lean heavily on their input because they're the ones out there every day who are understaffed, underfunded, um, you know, probably not the best equipment. You know, they're, they're in a situation where they're giving people, you know, citations and probably not even showing up to court or, you know, getting a probation before judgment or, or just getting it thrown out like oh who cares he caught five extra fish it's got to be pretty discouraging to try to protect the resources from their perspective 
Uh, and they had a little feedback on the effort control side, you know, to, to help mitigate release mortality. And I'll read this as a direct quote. Um, and this is from uh, April 25th, 2022, Memorandum, Atlantic Stripe Ass Management Board, LEC input on Stripe Ass Draft Amendment 7 options for recreational release mortality. So for option B, effort control, seasonal closures, um, the LEC emphasized previously discussed concerns that no targeting closures would be unenforceable particularly considering striped bass overlap with other recreationally targeted species and enforcement cannot prove targeting intent. On the other hand, no harvest closures would be enforceable. And for very specific, just spawning closures, the LEC noted that closure areas should be clearly defined for implementation. So that, in the nutshell, is why the Guides Association did not support closures, because they're unenforceable, completely and utterly unenforceable. And, you know, that is not going to change. And and it's almost like you feel like you're uh, you're arguing with somebody that the sky is blue. And you get tired of that argument because it's obvious the officers from up and down the coast are saying that they cannot prove targeting intent. They could hop on somebody's boat, watch them catch stripers, and the people are like, yeah, these damn striped things. I'm trying to catch bluefish and fluke. Try to catch black sea bass. These stupid stripers keep bothering me. And that's it. They can't prove it. Case closed. So um, that is why we didn't support it, because you have to you have to deal in reality when you deal with these issues. On top of that, um, that law enforcement paragraph right there, it also uh, kind of shows how underdeveloped this section was. Um, you know, that was something that at the um, advisory panel meeting, there was almost unanimous uh some opposition to this section because of how underdeveloped it was and the ap for striped bass is a pretty diverse group of people too from a you know so many different motivations and, and both sectors um so they thought it was underdeveloped too uh and then you look at some of these notes below um below this uh that section's um tabulation for the commenters and it says, you know, some commenters also noted that spawn enclosures should include closures and staging areas for pre-spawn fish. So, you know, this was another one of those um, reasons why we decided not to weigh in on this because we're going to have time to address it more fully. And there are, there were so many important um, components to this specific thing on spawning area closures or um, no harvest areas that were left out of this discussion and deserve, um, you know, a ton more detail and, and consideration. Well, Will, I mean, we discussed this when we were coming up with the guides association position. I was like, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, somebody open a map, open a DNR map of the Chesapeake Bay. If one river South of me or the river North of me, the Chester and the chop tank, 
I cannot fish in them until June first. If I'm if I'm some you know wealthy person from New York and I'm like, oh, lovey, I want to buy a house on the Chesapeake Bay. We'll fish all the time. We'll buy a house on the chop tank. It sounds lovely. And then you move here and you realize you can't fish in the damn thing until June 1st. Every year. Every year. Never changes. June 1st. Every spawning river in the Chesapeake Bay is closed until June 1st. Um, we had a catch and release season on the, on the Susquehanna Flats, but we jumped through hoops of fire to get that thing open. And it was, it was catch and release caught predominantly nail male fish that were staging on the flats before, uh, or to intercept the females when they were coming up into the rivers to spawn. So, you know, they have closures in New York, they have closures in Maine. Um, what do these closures mean? And like Mike said, how do you quantify this? Well, and what, what do, do the closures, close? what do the closures mean if you can, uh, potentially harvest those fish two weeks before they get up in those rivers you know right that, that that's that's the thing that at least i was thinking of that should have at least been on the table for the public to get involved on yeah and the other thing mike we brought this up and this is this is regionally specific but you have a gillnet season in virginia a gillnet season in Maryland, a Hall Sane season in Maryland. You have one going on in Virginia. You also have uh, of, and several net fisheries going on in the Potomac Rivers Fisheries Commission. We know as anglers in the Chesapeake Bay, we get big migratory fish starting in February. February. And those gillnet seasons are going on. So why are you putting this all on us? 70% of the of the numbers of fish not weight 70 percent of the commercially caught striped bass are caught in maryland 70 percent so you know i guess what i'm saying is like we can do anything we want in maine or rhode island or new hampshire and it's not going to amount to anything until we get a handle on maryland and new jersey really um you know i think that's where the rubber meets the road uh, I think you could have a complete no targeting moratorium in Maine and New Hampshire. And I don't, I don't know if it would save a single goddamn fish, you know, the, you can't, you can't put this all on recreational anglers when the number one producing estuary, 70% of the numbers of fish commercially caught coastwide are from the place that produces 70% of the overall population of striped bass. It's insane. And yes, look, it's 10% of the overall mortality, but it's it's 70% of the total commercially caught fish are, are caught in the biggest nursery. And, and they're not allowed to keep fish over 36 inches. So you can't, it, it's totally disingenuous. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if people remember this or not, but when we had to take the 18.5% reduction with addendum six, they put all of that on recreational anglers in Maryland. Uh, commercial anglers had to take a 1.8% a, a reduction and recreational anglers had to take in excess of a 20% reduction. Uh, it was not shared equally. So the commercial fishermen are essentially fishing under the same quota that they've been fishing under forever, still catching 70% of the fish still have nets in the water 
when when big spawners are here that they can't keep anyway. Well, Virginia can. And you kind of put it all on us and blame us, blame us for it. I don't know what your all thoughts are that. I mean, we've been pretty fair handed with the commercial sector, but you know, <laughs> what the outcome has not been fair for us for the rec sector. So I don't know what y'all think about that. Yeah, you know, at at the end of the day, just to, from a logical perspective, uh, if you're you know if you're cutting down on recreational fishing and you know people that might catch that fish on the way into a gill net aren't catching it anymore you know, have you actually saved anything or have you just, you know, taken a bite out of the tackle shops business kind of thing? Um, a, a lot of my background and sort of my personal interests and most of the work, frankly, that I've done over the years is in, you know, it's really more in terrestrial conservation, right? Um, you know, your, your, your game species and, and things of that nature. And if I think back to sort of the North American model that we use to manage, you know, our North American wildlife, right? The 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 methods that we that we've used to bring back, you know, the bison from near the brink of extinction to you know somewhat abundance today, um, we're we're relying on science to figure out where you know where we make the decisions, how we set the allocations, how we set the seasons, and things of that nature, and. Uh, and, and going back to that comment from the technical committee, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of science to support this. Um, the the idea of, of also, like Tony said, just targeting the recreational sector to sort of fix the problem, I, I don't think is um, is what's going to get us there, and, and certainly doesn't make everybody feel like they're doing their equal part to you know to help recover these fish. Something else that you know I think gets missed maybe, but while biomass is low and you know we're at a 25 year low right now according to the last stock assessment which was using data 4 years ago so we could be very close to a 30 year low right now um all of those potential breeders that are in the Chesapeake Bay getting you know wrapped up in gill nets that has a lot more impact at this biomass level and towards recovering these fish than it would um you know if we were above the target at threshold at those type, those levels. Um, so, you know, that, that, that again needs to come into this calculation too. But, uh, you know, I think we've, uh, hammered this pretty good, Tony. I don't know what, what you're thinking. No, I, I just, I'm really appreciative for Mike to come on here. Um, I look forward to working with BHA on, um, you know, I think the next thing, Mike, that we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, hit head on our access issues for surf fishermen uh in new england i'm i'm so excited uh to learn more about that uh what you've been fighting on the ground for a while and uh and and help out where it makes sense from the guys association um i i it's just been such a pleasure working with you guys i, I wanted to get you on this podcast um will you know appreciate all your insights on this you know guys um i i don't know you know <laughs> say a prayer uh do something go to a go to a quiet place on wednesday the fourth uh you know i, I just do do whatever do whatever it is for a little bit of luck that you would do put on your rally caps and and we'll listen to this hearing uh, and, and we'll have, you know, some kind of podcast right after that.
to kind of say what we thought about it and what our takeaways were. But we all came together. We all did the job that we needed to do. We did the best we could for stripers. And, you know, uh, we'll just we'll see what we'll see what happens. Um, And and we're all very hopeful, but it's a guarded hope. If I could, Tony, to circle around to a closing thought here, I I do want to take a a second to thank everybody that took the time to digest this thing and and to weigh in. Right. The four thousand people that are in support of so many of these issues that we felt were important. If we do get a positive outcome from the Stripe Bass Board meeting, and I'm really hopeful that we will, the reason that that will be the result is because people took the time to, you know, to learn, to educate themselves, to read the document, to, you know, look up the contact information for ASMFC and hit send on an email that that pushed them in this direction. All of these options, with, you know, with 4,000 voices behind them, it, it is overwhelming, and we needed the public to show up for this process just like we did uh, during the PID. And, you know, and so much as we were able to, I, I think that, that people really did. So I will be watching closely. I know you guys will be watching closely here in about a week, and, um, and we'll see what happens. Um, we'll, uh, we won't know what the outcome is until we know, and, uh, and that's going to be real soon. It's hard, man. I'm not a patient man. It's 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 hard to wait, but you know, uh, all you can do is what you can do, and then, and and you're a hundred percent right, Mike. Deep thank you to to all the folks that took the time to learn this issue. That's going to be what turns the tide in the future: is having better educated advocates, people who understand, and every time they participate in a process like this they increase their knowledge level and become better advocates for the resource, whether that is for fish, for stuff that you do for, uh, you know, inland, inland uh, hunting opportunities. The, the more that they participate, the better advocates that they are. So, you know, I, it, part of me feels like we've already won um, because we were able to bring so many individuals, so many brands, so many organizations under one tent and say this is what we want so thank you everyone uh for your participation on this we appreciate you listening to the guidepost thanks for mike and will joining us and uh and we're real excited to have bha here uh to be able to work with them in the future 